It's actually been several months since the Shepherds Conference staff first gave me the theme of this year's conference, 2020 Vision, Doctrinal Clarity for a Confused Generation. And the Shepherds Conference team said, what we want you to do this year, or what we want to do as a team this year, is single out some vital doctrines that are commonly misunderstood, misconstrued, neglected, or in some cases deliberately twisted by people who are bent on doing theological mischief. And they said, we want to bring some clarity to those issues. And so they asked me to suggest a list, a short list of important doctrines that tend to get mangled or ignored these days. And so I sent them a list of doctrines that I wanted to hear the other speakers deal with. And it turns out they took my list as if those, I meant those were topics I wanted to cover in a plenary session. So they they zoned in on the hardest one, and that's what they assigned to me, the doctrine of original sin. Literally the hardest doctrine on my list. And I really don't know if it's possible to do justice to this subject in one session, but I'm going to give it a try. The doctrine of original sin is the truth that when Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, that one act of disobedience resulted in the fall of the entire human race. Adam's sin left us all guilty and morally corrupt. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, is the key text on this doctrine. And in fact, turn there before we get into the details of the passage. I just want to survey it with you, and I want you to notice Romans 5, starting at verse 12. In this brief text, the Apostle Paul repeatedly affirms the doctrine of original sin with a succession of very clear statements. He uses expressions like this, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin spread to all men. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Five times in those 10 verses, Paul clearly and categorically states that humanity's sin problem stems entirely from one act of sin, namely Adam's disobedience. And the ramifications of that are monumental. Adam's sin fatally corrupted his offspring. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, that's clear, right? Adam's sin corrupted all of humanity. It ruined human nature. That single act of disobedience is the source of our sinful character. You are not a sinner because you sinned. The opposite is true. You sin because you are a sinner. You were born a sinner. As David confessed in Psalm 51 verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Which is to say we are fallen from the moment of our conception in the womb. And the reason for that is traceable directly to Adam's rebellion. And furthermore, this is absolutely vital. The guilt of Adam's disobedience is imputed to his offspring. There is no other conclusion you can draw from this. Verse 18, through one man's transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Adam's disobedience rendered all of his offspring subject to judgment and condemnation. Paul's very clear about that. In short, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to his progeny, all men. Uh, Just as an aside, by the way, this is not what I want to get into, but I need to say it as we go through this. This passage expressly affirms the unity of the human race. You know, the world has stained our thinking with a lot of nonsense about racial divisions, but Scripture always treats humanity as a single race, as Paul says in Acts 17, 26, God made from one blood every ethnos. So it's one blood with multiple ethnicities, not different races. But anyway, if you recoil from the idea of imputed guilt, it is my goal in this hour to change your mind. This is a truth that is absolutely vital to the gospel. 
Paul's whole point in this passage is to defend the principle of imputation. This is the context, the broader context of the book of Romans. He is saying here in this passage that the very same principle by which Adam's guilt is imputed to his offspring also explains how it is that guilt from our sins can be imputed to Christ and how his righteousness can be imputed to us. Without the principle of imputation and imputed guilt in particular, you you literally have no gospel. If guilt can't be imputed, then Christ couldn't have borne our sins. And by the way, the doctrine of original sin is not a secondary truth. This is like the doctrine of the Trinity. It's one of those core doctrines that the believing church has always agreed on. Roman Catholics and Reformers both have confessed and defended this principle. It is quite simply one of the cardinal truths of the Christian faith. G.K. Chesterton, who was a Roman Catholic, famously called the doctrine of original sin the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved, he said. And he meant, of course, that empirical proof of the universal fallenness of the human race is visible everywhere you look. Everyone sins. The entire human race has obviously been corrupted by sin. So how did we get that way? And why is the world such an evil place? And what is the remedy for the human dilemma? Romans 5 answers all of those questions. And they are some of the most obvious and troubling theological problems that all of us eventually ask about. The answers Scripture gives point us always to this doctrine of original sin. And if you try to do away with this doctrine, you simply won't be able to make good sense of either sin or salvation. One other point by by way of introduction, it is absolutely crucial to understand that human fallenness is rooted in Adam's rebellion against God. And that spirit of creaturely defiance against the Almighty, that is the very thing that makes sin so exceedingly sinful. In short, sin is an expression of man's innate hostility towards God. Romans 8 verse 7 says, the carnal mind, that is the unregenerate mind, is hostile towards God. And despite what you might hear today, sometimes even from leading evangelical voices, sin is not evil because it fails to promote human flourishing. The evil of sin lies in the fact that it is defiance against the living God. In fact, that is the very definition of sin, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of God's law. Human flourishing isn't even always innately good. I mean, think about it. Hell isn't going to promote the flourishing of those who are sent there, but it is a righteous judgment against them. And I can't overstress how important this is. At the heart of every destructive worldview is a faulty hamartiology, a a twisted, erroneous doctrine of sin. That underlies every bad worldview. Misconstrue what sin is and, and why it has rendered the whole world dysfunctional, and you condemn yourself to a deadly, damnable system of belief replete with warped values, self-destructive ideas, and no real means of deliverance. We see that all over the world today. One of the main reasons I reject woke theology, critical race theory, intersectionality, and, and all of the currently popular notions of social justice is that all of those ideas stem from a worldview that sees the essence of evil as human inequity, disadvantage, an unjust distribution of poverty and privilege, as if that's the root of sin, so that everything wrong in the world boils down to a conflict between those who have power and those who are oppressed. So it's a horizontal notion of truth, uh, rather of sin. It's not a biblical way of looking at what is wrong with the human race. And I'm convinced that that most of what is wrong in the visible church is also rooted in an inadequate or faulty hamartiology. Our doctrine of sin needs to be cleaned up and made more biblical. Across the spectrum of the 
broad evangelical movement today, sin is a topic that, let's face it, has been almost totally ignored by evangelicals for decades, perhaps for more than a century. In, in the early part of the 20th century, especially when revivalism was at its peak, the doctrine of original sin was deemed too technical, so it was avoided. Then two world wars in the first half of the 20th century made the problem of human evil an issue that no one could simply ignore. It was too obvious. But liberal religion was on the rise in the big denominations, and instead of facing the reality of humanity's fallenness and acknowledging what Scripture teaches about human evil, the dominant view in mainstream churches was that we need to believe that people are fundamentally good. We can fix the problem with political solutions. In fact, listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about that. He said this, The tragic fallacy of the past hundred years has been to think that all of man's troubles are due to his environment, and that to change the man you have nothing to do but to change his environment. And then he added this, That overlooks the fact that it was in paradise where man first fell, in a perfect environment. By the middle of the century, evangelicals thought the starting point of the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Frankly, think about it. A a sound doctrine of original sin would have messed up that narrative. And by the end of the 20th century, with seeker-sensitive methodology in vogue, Evangelical thought leaders were convinced that the subject of sin itself was just too negative-sounding, and they simply ignored the subject altogether. And by then, the evangelical movement was in the hands of people who were four or five generations removed from any clear teaching on original sin. And so we went through a liberal phase for a decade where the emerging church movement was influential. That, in turn, gave birth to woke religion— And incredibly, after all of that, you still sometimes hear people complain that evangelicals have too much to say about sin, and that we ought to be teaching people instead tolerance and diversity and multiculturalism and social justice or some other currently stylish postmodern value. And now we even have evangelical thought leaders who are redefining sin so that concupiscence those evil desires, inordinate sexual desires, even perverted sexual desires, same-sex attraction, these, we are told, are not to be viewed as sinful anymore, as long as the person who harbors those desires remains celibate. And all of this reflects a general softening of the evangelical perspective on sin. It is a calculated attempt to make sin not so exceedingly sinful. And it all stems from our failure to understand and affirm how thoroughly Adam's disobedience has corrupted all of us. So let's look at this passage in Romans 5. Albert Barnes referred to this as the most difficult part of the New Testament. And although I would disagree with Albert Barnes on several points of doctrine, I wouldn't argue with him about how difficult it is to understand and teach the second half of Romans 5. This is a hard chapter. Hard, hard portion of Scripture. But let's look at it in context. Leading up to chapter 5, Paul has been building the case for justification by faith. That's his main theme in the book of Romans. And he says, believers are accepted by God as righteous, not because of anything worthy in them, but solely because Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. Imputation, that's the key to Paul's gospel presentation, imputed righteousness. Here's a definition. Imputation is a forensic reckoning where one moral agent is credited with either the guilt or the righteousness of another moral agent. It's a a legal principle that applies to corporate bodies where merit or liability can be transferred between the head and the members. And the gospel absolutely depends on this principle. Scripture says repeatedly that the sins of the elect were imputed to Christ, although he was absolutely innocent of all of those sins, he paid the penalty for them. And in a similar fashion, actually in the opposite opposite way, 
His perfect righteousness is reckoned by God to belong to people who are not actually righteous. Romans 4, 5, God justifies the ungodly. And verse 6, God imputes righteousness apart from works. That's Romans 4, 6. So even though believers have no merit of their own, they get credit for Christ's righteousness. It's imputed to them. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says that for our sake, God made Christ to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a double imputation. And Paul carefully explains this principle. He starts with it in Romans 3.21 and carries it all the way through the end of chapter 4. And then in Romans 5, he begins to outline the benefits of our justification. Because we are justified, he says, we have peace with God. Look at it, verse 1. We have, verse 2, access and a standing in God's grace. Verses 3 through 5, we have a reason to rejoice in our trials. And verses 5 through 10, we have complete reconciliation with God. All of those, he says, are present possessions for the true believer. And they are benefits of our justification that we enjoy right now. Christ has already obtained every conceivable spiritual benefit on our behalf. And in the midst of explaining all of this, Paul keeps touching on the truth that as far as divine justice is concerned, Christ is our representative. He's our substitute. He's our proxy. He says, for example, verse 9, we are justified by his blood, saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, saved by his life. And all of those expressions mean that in view of God's justice, Christ is our representative. He stands at the bar of judgment as our proxy, and he takes the punishment we deserve, and the full merit of his righteousness becomes ours by imputation. Now, think about the implications of all of this. If we're honest, I think all of us would have to admit at some point that this whole idea of merit by proxy runs counter to our intuitive sense of justice. Is it right to appraise one man by the merits of another? How can justice either punish or reward one moral agent according to the actions of another? In fact, this is the very moral dilemma that makes the doctrine of original sin so hard to accept, so hard to deal with. In fact, let's just put the hard question on the table. How can God hold you and me guilty for Adam's sin? But when you find yourself asking that question, remember, first of all, that the very same question lies at the heart of our justification. How can God punish Christ for sinners? And how can the merit of Christ's righteousness be imputed to us? Our salvation depends on that principle. And those are precisely the questions Paul is dealing with in this context to show how it is that Christ's righteousness can count as merit for you and me. He goes back to the example of Adam and talks about how we inherited Adam's guilt. He's using the imputation of Adam's guilt as an illustration of how Christ provides redemption. And that's what brings the doctrine of original sin into the passage that we're concerned with this morning. It doesn't just jump in the middle of the book of Romans. He's defending the principle of justification. Now, I'm going to read this whole passage beginning with verse 12. And as I read, I want you to notice two things. First, it's immediately clear that that the apostle is drawing an analogy between Adam and Christ. Very simple. Pay attention to that analogy, and you'll notice that sometimes he seems to be making a comparison. Other times, it looks like he's making a contrast. And in fact, he's doing both things. He's showing that the means by which Adam's guilt came to us is the same means by which Christ's righteousness comes to us. That's the comparison he's making. It's a two-way imputation. But at the same time, he emphasizes that the results of these two reckonings are precisely the opposite. That's the contrast he's making. So second, notice that verse 12 
breaks off mid-sentence. And verse 13 starts a new sentence with a whole new point. And in fact, verses 13 through 17 are one long parenthesis. It's a digression. Those five verses are a slight digression. Something interrupted Paul's thought flow. He stops in the middle of a sentence and injects verses 13 through 17 to, to lay a better foundation for what he was planning to say. And in fact, the King James Version and the New King James Version actually include the parentheses to make it clear that those verses are a digression. That's important. We'll come back to it as we look through the verse, but, but notice that to begin with. If you miss the flow of Paul's logic here, you will miss the meaning of the whole passage. So again, I'll come back to that, but here's the passage starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin was in in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, let's look at this systematically from two sides. First of all, we're going to look at the comparison Paul makes between Adam and Christ, and then we'll observe the contrast he makes between them. So let's start with a comparison. Obviously, from where most of us sit, it's a lot simpler to see contrasts than comparisons between what Christ did and what Adam did. And yet, unless you see that both Adam and Christ fulfilled a similar kind of headship, you're going to have difficulty understanding any of this. So so let me begin by saying this, and this is Paul's main point of comparison between Adam and Christ. Each of them stands in the role of headship. They represent an entire class of people. Adam represents the class of people who are in Adam. Christ represents all those who are in Christ. And that same parallel between Adam's headship over the human race and Christ's headship over the redeemed race comes up repeatedly in Paul's writings. It's very important to Pauline theology. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, Paul writes, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's talking about all who are in Adam die, all who are in Christ are made alive. And then he, he even refers to Christ as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. The first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So there is such an exact parallel between Adam and Christ that the apostle, in essence, refers to Christ as the second Adam. Now, the importance of that parallel can hardly be stressed too much. Paul is saying that there is a correspondence between the way we fell into sin in Adam and the way we are redeemed from that sin in Christ. And unless you understand the fall and the doctrine of original sin, you can't understand redemption accurately. Your understanding of what it means to be in Christ is to a very large degree dependent on what you think it means to be in Adam. And everyone is either in Christ or in Adam. There is no middle ground. All in Adam die... All in Christ are made alive. All in Adam are clothed in guilt. All in Christ are clothed in righteousness. And the whole point of the passage that we're concerned with this morning is is this. 
the means by which we become partakers of Christ's righteousness is an exact parallel of how we became partakers of Adam's guilt. Our relationship to Adam in his fall explains our relationship to Christ in his redeeming work. This is Paul's whole point in this passage. In fact, he says in a phrase at the end of verse 14 that Adam was a type or a figure, a living picture of the one who was to come. So Adam is an archetype. He prefigures Christ. He's like a prophetic foreshadowing of Christ. He's a living picture of the one who was to come. Adam stood in relationship to the whole human race in the same way Christ stands in relationship to the redeemed race. He was the firstborn in position and and in his standing. He's the representative head of everyone in his class. And the Greek word that's translated type there is a word that spoke of a die or or a pattern from which a coin was struck. Paul is suggesting that the nature of Adam's headship over the human race is an exact pattern of the headship of Christ over the redeemed race. They are are like coins struck from the same die in the way they exercise their headship. Now, what is the nature of that headship? There have been a couple of ideas set forth about this. One suggests that because Adam is the literal father of the race, he is our head merely because we are his offspring. According to this view, we inherit Adam's guilt because we were in him in seminal form when he sinned. In other words, we descended from him, and so his relationship as our first ancestor, the fact that we are his offspring, explains why we inherited his fallenness. So sin is passed to us through our genetic relationship to Adam. That idea is called seminal headship. And and those who hold that view will point to Hebrews 7, verse 10, as support for that idea. So keep a marker here in Romans 5. Turn to Hebrews 7. I want to look at this for a moment. Hebrews 7, we're going to focus on verse 10. Here, the writer of Hebrews is making the point that Melchizedek belonged to to a higher order of priests than Levi. And this is the argument he makes, verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. In other words, Levi, who was the offspring of Abraham, in effect, paid tithes to Melchizedek when Abraham met him and paid those tithes. So that proves that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And those who hold to the seminal headship of Adam make a similar argument. We were all in Adam's loins when he fell, and therefore we fell with him because because of that genetic connection we have to him. Now, that's a fairly common explanation of Adam's headship over the race. That's called the seminal headship view. It's also the wrong view, and it makes mincemeat of Romans 5. It's a problem with it. It also results in some other fairly serious theological difficulties. One is this. If we share Adam's guilt for eating the forbidden fruit because we are related to him seminally, why is it just that one act of disobedience that is so significant? Because you think about it, that wasn't literally the first sin. Eve disobeyed before Adam did. And if sin and guilt pass to a person's offspring through the seminal relationship, why do we talk about original sin at all? Why aren't we held equally guilty for everything Adam ever did wrong, along with everything every one of our ancestors has ever done wrong? In other words, if we share Adam's guilt because we were in his loins when he sinned, why doesn't God also hold us responsible for every wrong that our own fathers did before we were born, and our grandfathers, and so on? If you hold to the seminal view consistently, you'd have to say that we must be piling up guilt from every wrong thing our ancestors ever did while we were in their loins so that you and I would actually be more guilty in God's eyes than Cain and Abel were. And let me say this in passing about Hebrews 7. I don't think Hebrews 7 is teaching that Levi really and literally paid tithes to Melchizedek and Abraham. This is symbolic language. The point is that if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek 
and Levi descended from Abraham, then Melchizedek's priesthood must necessarily have been superior to Levi's. It preceded him. Uh, it, uh, Levi's ancestors paid tithes to him. Scripture makes it clear in, in several places that guilt normally does not automatically pass from parent to child. Ezekiel 18.20, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. But the most glaring difficulty with the seminal headship view is that it destroys the parallelism Paul is working so hard to show us here in Romans 5, because we don't have any seminal relationship with Christ. There is no parallel sense in which we were ever in his loins. And so under the seminal view, Adam would be our head in one sense, a physical, literal sense. He's our ancestor. And Christ then must be our head in some totally different, only spiritual sense. But Paul is expressly teaching here that the representative roles of headship held by Adam and Christ are perfectly parallel, so that Adam stands with respect to those who are in Adam in precisely the same role of headship Christ takes with respect to those who are in Christ. They are parallel heads of their respective races. Adam, the head of the fallen race, Christ, the head of the redeemed race. And it is a representative headship. Theologians refer to it as federal headship. Adam stood at the head of our fallen race as a representative for us, an official representative. Christ stands at the head of the redeemed race in an identical kind of headship. He is our representative. He is our federal head. He acts as an agent or a proxy on our behalf, and Adam was acting in a similar capacity when he fell into sin. And truthfully, this is not some weird kind of thing you'd never hear of in any other concept. This same kind of representative headship is actually quite common in the normal affairs of men. The leader of a nation may declare peace or make a treaty or declare war that either obliges his citizens in that country to fight or to make peace. In fact, think about it. Guilt over Hitler's atrocities brought shame on an entire generation of Germans. Fathers often act as the representative heads of their families. And the elders of a church sometimes act as the representative heads for the body. The person you work for might enter into a contract, and you as his employee will be obligated to fulfill the terms of that agreement because he acts as your head and your representative. I recently read about a man who ran up a large debt on credit cards and then abandoned his wife and went into hiding. And because she was covenanted to him in marriage, she's still legally obligated to repay his debts, even though she took no active part in spending the money. So this, this concept of headship is actually more common in the functioning of everyday society than you might think. And when creation was complete prior to the fall, Adam and Eve literally were the entire human race. Adam was given total freedom to eat any fruit in the Garden of Eden with just one simple restriction. And it should be obvious from the nature of that arrangement that this was a test for him. The human race, in its glorious, innocent, unfallen state, was being given a very easy test. And Adam was our representative in that test. He's the first and most perfect of all of us. He's frankly the one we would have chosen if we could vote to, to make a proxy for the test. He was the prototypical human, better, smarter, more honorable, more righteous than any of his offspring. He was the fitting and obvious choice and the only choice at that time to act as the head and stand as the representative for the whole human race. And the test was a simple test of his obedience, an easy test by any measure. He was provided with a world of delights and told he could eat every fruit in that entire garden except one. Anything else he wanted to do, he was free to do. But he was not to taste of the fruit of that one tree. And then acting in his role as the representative of our race, 
he failed that simple test. He ate the forbidden fruit, and that plunged the entire race into sin. Because he acted in the capacity of our representative and head, we fell when he fell. Both guilt and corruption passed to the whole human race because of what Adam did, and that is what Paul says in our passage. Look at it. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, both the context and the grammatical construction of this verse means what he, Paul is saying here is we all sinned in Adam. We all sinned when Adam sinned. Paul is contrasting this specific sin of Adam's with the sins that you and I commit as individuals. It's tempting, but it's dead wrong to interpret verse 12 as if Paul means death spread to all men because all committed later sins of their own. But that cannot be his meaning because the entire point of verse 12 is that sin and death passed to all humanity because of what Adam did. And the extended passage repeatedly says that humanity's fallenness stems from this one very specific transgression. There's no way around it. He is saying that Adam's guilt is imputed to all of us. Death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Adam's sin is therefore imputed to his posterity. Now notice, the, the, the proof that Paul is talking about imputed sin is seen in the very next verse. Sin is not imputed when there's no law. We're going to come back to verse 13, because it's, it's a difficult verse, but the point here is absolutely essential. Adam's sin is imputed to his posterity. We inherit both the guilt and the corruption that stemmed from that act. Verse 18 proves that we inherit his guilt because one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And verse 19 rather proves we inherit corruption from Adam's sin. By the one man's disobedience, many were constituted sinners. And in fact, We don't fall into sin individually on our own. We are born sinners, and this explains why. When Adam fell, he was acting as our representative and our agent. Notice what Paul is saying. The headship of Adam exactly parallels the headship of Christ. Both of them acted as representatives for others, Adam acting for all who are in Adam, Christ acting for all who are in Christ. And here is the basis, the whole basis, for the principle of substitutionary atonement. What Christ did to redeem us, he did as our substitute and our proxy. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, and then he died in our place to pay the price of our sin. His role in redeeming us perfectly mirrors and effectively reverses Adam's role in plunging us into sin. Notice how many times the Apostle Paul draws that parallel in our passage. He starts to do it in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, but he doesn't complete that sentence. This is what I was talking about earlier. As I pointed out earlier, everything from verse 13 through verse 17 is a digression. He's interrupted his thought. And then in verse 18, he comes back to what he was about to say in verse 12. And this time, he completes the thought. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Notice the parallel. Sin and judgment came upon those who are in Adam. In the very same way, righteousness comes upon all those who are in Christ by imputation. And in verse 15, he draws the parallel between Adam and Christ again. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And again in verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Again and again, he states that the relationship between Adam's sin and those who are in Adam 
is the very same kind of relationship that exists between Christ's righteousness and those who are in Christ. Notice the obvious parallelism in verse 19 between the expressions made sinners and made righteous. Paul has just spent a chapter and a half making the point that believers are made righteous by imputation. Clearly, what he has in view here is the imputation of Adam's sin, not merely some kind of genetic transmission of sin's corruption. But Adam was acting as the agent and the representative of all who are in him. Christ likewise acts as the agent and representative of all who are in him. When Adam failed, we failed in him. When Christ died, we died in him. That is the comparison Paul is making here. So that's the comparison. Let's talk about the contrast. While they both stood at the heads of their respective peoples as federal head and representative, the results of that headship could not be more different. And the most clear and concise summary of the difference he's he's pointing out is actually found outside this passage in 1 Corinthians 15.22. I quoted it earlier, as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And here in Romans 5, Paul is simply taking that same truth and breaking it down into several aspects. Here are some of the contrasts that he highlights in Romans 5. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. In other words, Adam committed an offense that resulted in death for many, but Christ provided a gift, a gift of grace, that results in life for many. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You see the contrast there? With Adam as the representative head, one guy sins and many people are condemned. But with Christ as the representative head, one sacrifice atones for the offenses of the many and justifies all of them. Verse 17, because of one man's offense, death reigned, but all who are in Christ shall reign in life. Another contrast, verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So let's sum up all of these contrasts. Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed. Adam's headship brought condemnation to the people he represented. Christ's headship results in justification for those whom he represents. Adam brought guilt and corruption on his people. Christ brings grace and a free gift to his people. Adam's headship brought death to everyone in Adam. Christ's headship brings life to everyone in in Christ. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's a huge contrast. Now, let me comment on something that people inevitably ask about. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There are some who want to try to make this verse teach universalism. Because notice the words, all men. And occasionally someone will suggest that the all men who are judged in Adam, refers to each and every one of Adam's offspring. And so when he uses that same expression, all men, in the same verse, they say, this must suggest that each and every person will ultimately be saved. No, remember this passage is all about the representative headship of both Adam and Christ. The first all men refers to all men who are in Adam. The second all men refers to all men who are in Christ. And if you want to be politically correct, you can say all people. Because that's what he means. There is one more difficulty represented in this passage that I I want to clear up. Verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, what does the apostle mean when he says, sin is not imputed where there is no law? Some have suggested that this means people 
weren't actually counted as guilty of any sin before Moses brought the commandments down from the mountain. But that is contrary to what we know from Scripture. It is contrary to common sense. It's contrary, actually, to the very point Paul is making here. Let's analyze these two verses. Paul starts with the plain statement of his point. Until the law, sin was in the world. There was, indeed, sin prior to the giving of the law on Sinai. And people were held accountable for their actions. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Some people read that and conclude that if sin can't be imputed in the absence of law, then people must not have been held accountable for their sins before Moses brought those tablets down from the mountain. But Paul's point is exactly the opposite. Sin is not counted where there is no law, but sin was clearly taken into account before Moses because people died. Therefore, there must have been some kind of law. After all, God judged Sodom. He judged the whole world with a flood. And in fact, every person who ever lived from Adam to Moses died. That's what he's pointing out. And he's saying that is the ultimate proof that they were sinners, even and sin was imputed to them because they died. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, the universality of death proves the universality of sin. So that even people who don't sin against a written law, a direct, clearly revealed commandment of God, the way Adam did, they're still sinning because they sin against their consciences. They violate the law written in their hearts. It's what Paul says in Romans 2.15. And thus, they prove their complicity with Adam by violating whatever moral principles they hold to. In fact, if human history teaches us anything, it teaches us this. Sin is a universal reality. And the greatest proof of that is the universality of death. That's Paul's point in these verses, verses 13 and 14. A lot of people think also that the, the doctrine of original sin implies the damnation of infants who die. It doesn't. And we don't have time to explore all the biblical data on that, but I've done a whole message on that question, and it's on the internet. You can download it, Google my name and infants who die or something like that. But here's a, here's a short answer to that question. I'm convinced dying infants go to heaven, not because they merit heaven by their innocence, but because God's mercy extends in a particular way to those who don't have the intellectual capacity to hear the gospel and embrace it by faith. You see this at the end of the book of Jonah, for example, where the Lord declares His particular kindness to those who were too young to distinguish their right hand from their left. That's a whole different subject, though, and I don't, I don't really have time to get into it. We need to tie all this together and conclude. I began by pointing out that verse 18 teaches that in some sense and to some degree, each one of us is tainted by guilt from Adam's sin. Some degree of guilt from Adam's original sin is imputed to each one of us. So let's go back to the really hard question. How can someone else's guilt justly be imputed to us? There are two reasons. One, as we have seen, Adam was acting as our representative head when he fell. And number two, more importantly, our own actions prove that we are in every sense in agreement with and in complicity with Adam's rebellion against God. And so God imputes to us the guilt that Adam incurred. We are justly held guilty along with him. There are always people who want to resist this truth and complain that that kind of legal imputation is unfair and unjust, no matter how much biblical evidence you set before them to show that Adam's sin did indeed result in the fall of the entire human race. But consider this, and this is, this is the point I, I hope you will take away from this session. Without this doctrine of legal imputation, we wouldn't have any hope of salvation. Christ was able to pay the penalty for our sins because the guilt of our sins was imputed to Him. He took it willingly. And if you rule out the imputation of guilt from one person to another, 
you destroy the very idea of substitutionary atonement. Furthermore, the principle of imputation explains how it is that the merit of Christ's righteousness can be imputed to those of us who are in Christ. That is the only way that while we are yet sinners, God can justify us and bring us into a perfect right relationship with Him. And so, in an important sense, the doctrine of original sin is based on the very same principles as the doctrine of justification by faith. You destroy one, you destroy the other. For believers, the atoning work of Christ represents the absolute and ultimate undoing of Adam's fall, and it's accomplished with precisely the same principles of justice. It's a 180-degree reversal, but done in perfect symmetry with the same principles. And that's why Paul brought up the subject of Adam's sin in this context anyway, while he's talking about justification by faith. One doctrine explains the other, and if you don't embrace the justice that imputes the guilt of Adam to you, you will never be able to embrace the doctrine of justification by faith, where our guilt was imputed to Christ and atoned for, and His righteousness is imputed to us for salvation. That is the gospel. Throw that away. Throw away the doctrine of original sin, and you undermine the very foundation of the gospel. Understand the doctrine of original sin, and a host of vital doctrines fall into place. It explains why we have this sinful bent. It reminds us that we cannot save ourselves. And most important, it makes sense of the doctrine of justification. Like every other vital truth of Scripture, it points us to Christ, the second Adam, who made the only possible atonement for our sin and who provides us with the righteousness we need for a right standing with God by faith alone. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are confronted here with the truth of our fallenness, and it moves us to confess, as David did, that we were inclined towards sin from the moment of our conception. We'd be hopeless without a perfect Savior whom you have provided in the person of your Son. You brought us up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. You set our feet on a rock. You put a new song in our mouths. May we now walk in newness of life for the glory of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.